0: Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am with Dr. Lincoln Lifts himself, Dr. Merrick Lincoln. Merrick, how
1: are you, man? I'm great, thanks, Corey. Happy to be here.
0: I, yeah, you bet. I, I had to shout out the the Instagram handle right away because it's great. I love it. The Doctor Lincoln list. It's just it's what I do or <laughs> what you do. Thank you for that. Thank you. For that. Uh, not you actually,
1: one of my students helped me out with that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. T- it's t it's great. T Nation said you got to get on social media if you're going to write for us. You need an account. I said, man, what's my you know? I need a handle. Right? Need something yeah. that resonates. So. Yep. I, I like to lift weights.
0: It's, it's great when students help with that. So when I was teaching slash, you know, being a strength coach, we had this workout that the other strength coach at, at our school would do every once in a while, just as a fun thing. And it was called Big Gary's Big Guns. And it was Gary Boros, who was a former Cal Dietz assistant and was most recently at University of Denver for like seven years. And I'm like, you know what? I want my own. I want my own work, work out for the arms. I don't want to do someone else's. Like I love Gary, but I want mine. So I'm like, what am I going to call this thing? And uh, I just turned to my football, one of my football players one day and he goes, coach Corey's guns of glory. And I'm like, that's it. That's <laughs> anyway. So students can be very helpful. So and, and I will say that that workout still is done to this day at, at where I used to teach at Northwestern college. And so. Anyway, all right, before we dive into the topic today, Merrick, why don't you go ahead and give the listener your background, who you are, and what you're doing now?
1: Thanks, Corey. So I'm formally educated as a physical therapist, so I received my DPT from Central Michigan University, practiced for a couple of years, and then the opportunity to get into academics arose. So in 2018, I began teaching for a kind of a mid-sized D2 school in in the lower peninsula of Michigan. So imagine Saginaw Valley State University. It's at the crook of the thumb. So if you envision the (laughs) the mitten of Michigan, it's kind of at the crease of the thumb. So It's a great school, about 8,500 students. We have a strong uh, kinesiology program offering exercise science degrees and a rehab medicine undergrad degree. And that's kind of where I came in. They needed an instructor that could teach across exercise science and this rehabilitation medicine um, degree program. Um, So- You know, going through PT school, I was looking up to these strength coach, physical therapist kind of hybrid Mm -hmm. practitioners, Kelly Starrett, you know, you had Quinn Hennick and, and that's, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. And then upon graduation, I sat for my CSCS and blending these things in practice and thinking, man, all physical therapists have their CSCS now, at least, you know, in, in sports, in the sports orthopedic realm. Sure. What can I do, you know, above and beyond this? And that kind of motivated my exploration of academics. So I started as a as an adjunct and just in the past five years, I've been going through the, you know, the academic tenure and promotion schedule. And probably by the time this airs, I'll be an associate professor
0: of yeah, kinesiology. Congrats. So
1: thank you very much, Corey.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is a very interesting observation because you're right, like this blending of physical therapists. And the strength coach, they, they're just kind of m- melding a little, I feel like, into into one, which is good. Like, it's good because I think that came from the understanding and realization that each was missing something. Like the, the physical therapist or t- classically trained PT kind of missing the understanding of program design and progressions and periodization and, and things like that. But then the strength conditioning coach is missing the sports med side. So that's really interesting, and I'll also shout out Quinn because he was—he was really one of the first that I kind of started following, and he informed a ton of my my coaching and, and the way I would write programming and teach movement. And we'll get into some of that with the episode today. So, but but to have a DPT as a professor as your terminal degree in academia is it's—I mean, I have fairly rare. Would you, or you, maybe you can correct me on that, or is that? something that's more common than I, than I realize?
1: I'm certainly not the only one, but, yeah. you know, in my department, uh, everyone else has a PhD, so a, sure. a terminal academic degree. So I the, the clinical doctorate mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe that's why I, I don't really see myself as a true academic, but I, I see myself as more of a, a translator. You know, if you think about a translator, the translator doesn't have to have the greatest depth of knowledge, but, but the translator has to have breadth. You know, speaking yeah. both languages. Or in this case, I'm trying to speak, in a sense, three related languages. I want to be able mm. to take, you know, what I've learned as a physical therapist and the rehabilitation science piece, blend it with the strength and conditioning piece that I hold so dear, and then and then bring in the research, the the academic side and, and serve as a, a go between for yeah. my students, for my clients. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: for my readers.
0: Well, hey man, that is exactly who you want on this show. So You're, you're what, you're, you're what I've not, not I have termed, but the term I like to use, I should say, you're, you're a pracademic. It's the the type of person we want on this show. I think Brian Mann actually recently used that term and I'm like, that's right. That's what we need. We need, you know, the pracademic is, is really what we're going for. So part of your being a translator goal is that you are extremely prolific writer. So you write for T Nation, you write for Breaking Muscle. You write for NSCA. You've, you've had a couple journal articles released recently, like very recently. Talk about how you just, you know, briefly talk about how you got into that, and you know how that has informed you as a as a academic.
1: You know, I, I got to take it back a little further. I okay as an undergrad, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I was reading Teen Nation every day, and you, same, you've heard this story before. Yeah, you, you, you've lived this, right? I was um, this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just about every strength and conditioning coach I've come across has said the same thing. You know, I was reading T-Nation. That's how I got excited about it. And that was a great time. You know, Dan, John, Christian Thibodeau, all these. yeah, Absolutely. And one article a day, one article a day came out and you could look forward to it and you could read it. So always in the back of my mind, that was, that was some, that was a source that I was pulling knowledge from. And through school, it would kind of keep me going because it wasn't always clear what the application of what I was Mm. learning ultimately would be. Um, And it helped me to make connections. And ultimately, as an academic, as an assistant professor, I didn't have a clear research tract, but I was fortunate that my university kind of has given me leeway to look into research in the areas that I please. So it's like a kid in a candy store. I want to look at (laughs) velocity-based training. I want to look, you know, I want to design a neuromuscular injury risk reduction program. I want to look at exercise technique. That's a big thing. And we'll keep touching on that. yeah. Throughout today's talk, but I want to make sure that I'm blending those things we can glean from practice from the coaches that are doing it every day with the research. So my brand of writing or my style of writing, and I'm I'm thankful for both T Nation and Breaking Muscle are the two big ones that I've been writing for in the fitness realm. It seems to resonate. So I you know I'm, I've got this article that blends practice with with research, and it has two dozen citations, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a little different than than a lot of <laughs> the articles that you know you might be used to reading in there. Right. But it it is this blend, and along that along those lines, I've realized more recently that that I can collaborate mm. with individuals who are in the field. So your past guest, Met Ibrahim, was a yep. co author on my most recent article for Personal Training Quarterly. Just this month, it's June of 2023. So the most yep. recent conditioning. An a... yep. Yeah, So. Strength and Conditioning Journal Strength and Conditioning Journal ran our landmine exercise technique article that I co authored with uh, a student and Gareth Sapstead, he's he's the fitness maverick, he's the, the author of Maverick.
0: For, a a yes. future a future podcast guest. Oh, wonderful. So, You're gonna get Gareth yep. on here. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. And actually the for- editor editor, Jay, right? Jay Dawes was the editor of that article. Correct. A a current human kinetics author. He is. He wrote the TRX book for us. So, multiple, okay. multiple connections. Like, yeah, like you said, you can connect with people, which is awesome because that's just yeah. you know the whole goal of this podcast. But that's just the fun. That's the fun thing about our our industry too. Yeah, it did.
1: Gareth brought in his buddy Dr. Anthony Weldon, who's a <laughs> who's a prolific researcher in his own right. Yeah, we I've just been having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and that's that's how I've been able to. You know, turning these out—that's
0: awesome. And it—it it, it honestly made my heart happy to to see that the Meadows row made it into a, a more academic article. Like, you know, the late late John Meadows—I'm sure, like you know, he was also a former Teenage author, and you know, one of the one of my early influences when it kind of came to post-athletic you know, time of my training career, or like, hey, I'm not an athlete anymore. What, what am I going to do? Let's get jacked and let's do the crazy stuff that the mountain dog does. Absolutely. So that, that's awesome. One of your recent ones with with Matt Ibrahim, who again was a was a previous guest on on this podcast, was on exercise technique and instruction. So that's that's really the topic that we're we're going to dive into today. And so there's there's a lot I think happening with this topic. You know I think if anyone has is going through school right now or if if you're a more experienced coach or trainer it might seem like really fundamental like okay don't we know this already i know how to teach a squad or i know how to teach all these these movements but i would say i you know the the motor learning area of this has really started to come to the forefront and through motor learning research and what we know about teaching and cueing and what we say and how much that matters to not only the understanding of the athletes and clients we're talking to, but the retention of the things that we say and do is critically important for teach and then learning. But then also, and I'm sure you'll touch on this, it has pretty major implications for injury prevention and long-term, long term, long long term, you know, success in the the activity and potentially sport that you want to do, which is resistance training. So why don't you go ahead and give, I guess, an overview of what you've been looking into with regards to this topic, and then we can kind of take off from there with regards to the discussion.
1: So one of the most basic things a practitioner that could be a, a strength and conditioning coach, personal trainer, a clinician like a physical therapist or athletic trainer does is to teach exercise or mm-hmm. facilitate exercise. And, and we're lo- if we're looking at the gym-based exercises that individuals do, you can kind of simplify those or break those down into fundamental resistance training movement patterns. And I did not conceptualize this. Uh, for <laughs> many decades, folks have been talking about these movement patterns, sure. right? Yep. You know, you've got Dan John, he had five or six, you know, that he separated it into, I think, John Russen added the lunge to it, which, you know, in my mind is kind of like a single leg dominant squat, but (laughs) you know, we'll put our own spin on it. Right. And and make it, make it our own. But I loosely define these generalized movement patterns as they're, they're loadable multi joint movement patterns that are at least representative of the major lifts that we perform in, in the gym. Um, Mm -hmm. so the way that we chose to break down this particular article, um, in personal training quarterly was. Well, you've got your hinge, you've got your squat, and the distinction being between those two. The hinge is quite a bit more hip dominant, so more hip involvement in the hinge, and you know it, you can relate that to the deadlift versus mm. the squat pattern is is a combination of ankles, knees, and hips. Sure. Intentionally lowering the center of mass, and then you have you know your pushes and pulls, and we broke that down a little bit further: horizontal pushing, horizontal pulling. So horizontal pushing being, you know, like your bench press type movements, horizontal pulling being your rows yep, and then vertical pushing and vertical pulling. So vertical pushing, your overhead presses, military presses, things of that nature, vertical pulling, that's your, you know, your pull ups, your lat pull downs, things of like things of that nature. So that's kind of the mile high overview of the six movement patterns that we uh, considered in this article. Yep. And there really is no consensus on the best way to teach these movement patterns even though we all do it we're all tasked with doing it Mm -hmm. and what really kind of resonated with me is that when this article was going through peer review it was that claim that that i that we had made that there is no consensus on the best way to teach these movement patterns that really resonated with me and has me kind of going down my current train of thought here you know the the reviewer made a comment that, well, you know, there is, and and kind of made reference to traditional exercise pedagogy. You know, you you simplify it, you break it down into its more simple forms, you regress it and then progress it. And, and in general, yes, that's what we commonly do, mm. uh, but it isn't the only way of doing it. Right. And you recently had Dr. Rob Gray on who mm-hmm. took a deep dive into, into this ecological or dynamic systems approach where- We may be interested in simplifying the exercise to some extent, but we're letting the the mover kind of self-organize around, around their own unique physiology. So, the article strives to kind of blend, in a sense, this traditional exercise pedagogy, where you know we're using exercise instruction. Maybe we serve as a model and show the exercise and and give explicit instructions and have a practice schedule and maybe simplify it a bit. And blend it with this dynamic systems approach where we appreciate that every individual has a set of individual constraints. Everyone's going to be built a little bit differently. Their, their anthropometry is a little bit different. You know, it's the reason why everyone squats a little bit differently.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: um, ankle dorsiflexion, range of motion, yep, things like that. Yep. yep. But conceptually, that's just one piece of, of Carl Newell's constraints led approach. That's that's kind of one prong of the of the triangle. You have the individual constraints, you have the environmental constraints. And in 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 the gym, the environmental constraints might be, you know, the surface on which you're doing the exercise. The equipment that you're using is a big one. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: You're going to use a box and do squats to a box. Are you going to use a barbell, mm-hmm. you know, a dumbbell, or a safety squat bar?
0: Right. Absolutely. And then
1: The third component of this is your task constraints. So the, the rules, the rules that you impose with, with your instructions, and that's, that's a big one as coaches. I, I don't think we can neglect that, that the verbal or even visual information that we give to our learners kind of sets the perception, action coupling into motion, and then the the learner kind of gets a sense of what is this all about? What am I, mm-hmm. what's impacted of me?
0: Yeah, wow. absolutely. I well, mean, you dropped some bombs there. You, you used a few terms there. That's like, whoa, you self or self organization. <laughs> Perception action coupling. So I think we're going to spend a little, little time with those, but I, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the progression thing because in the world, I think, I think particularly in, team-based strength and conditioning, like it's all about the progression, right? Like progression, progression. What's your squat progression? What's your hinge hinge progression? What's your Olympic lift progression? And, you know, obviously we've got to find a middle ground with with most things, especially when it comes to team sports, because you are dealing with a lot of different, you know, individuals. And they all, like you mentioned, have their own individual constraints. But here's what we also know about People's skill level and learning is that it's it's non-linear. People don't learn at the same rates. People don't acquire skill at the same rates. People do not start at the same spot. And that aspect, and and again, this is just kind of like things about motor learning that have honestly been known for a really long time. That are just I feel like starting to break into the sports performance, strength and conditioning, personal training world. And so as when I was a strength coach, I'm like, well. I want my athletes doing what's appropriate. I don't want to like hamstring someone into a specific goblet squat progression. If it's not necessary. I mean, and I mean, you could also say obviously like, well, it's not going to hurt them either. I I guess not, but I only get four years with these athletes and really I only get nine months because for the other three months they're off doing who knows what, probably nothing. So I'm like, I got to, I want to maximize my time. I want to make sure they're doing the most appropriate thing. And motor learning and skill acquisition is telling me that learning and skill are not a linear thing and that, you know, there are no time points for progressions here. I don't like, nothing, there's nothing to say that someone needs to goblet squat for four weeks at this load before they can progress to a hands-free front squat and then to a front squat and, you yada, yada, all down, down the line. And at the same time, like you mentioned, the way that we teach something. And the instructions that we give are going to either allow for someone to perform a movement in a way that is in alignment with their individual constraints, whether that's more like their anthropometrics, whether that's limb lengths, whether that's hip structure, whether that's ankle structure. And of course, there might be things we want to modify, like maybe they do have poor ankle dorsiflexion. So we we want to maybe improve that to give them a better way to do something or if we get super granular and we say do this do this do this and and you know move this at this time maybe we're not promoting optimal technique or, or movement patterns so i just think those those are things that are always in the back of my mind when i'm teaching when i was teaching and i guess currently still think about a lot and you know I think Nick Winkleman had a lot to do with this kind of coming to the forefront. I remember when I the very first time I heard his cueing lecture, I felt like my world was rocked. You mean, you mean me saying like every anatomical thing to my athlete when they're squatting is not a good thing, probably, and and we know it's it's probably not. Like, and this gets as a coach, it gets at the the aspect of here's what you need to know over here, and here's what the athlete needs to know over here. And not only what all of you that you include and how you say it, it's all extremely important. So that I, I just, yeah, that's just something to add here to the conversation. Let's go back to things like self organization constraints. How do you then take those things, and maybe you can start to talk here about the constraints-led approach to to, to this stuff? How do you take that into now teaching exercise and then also what it ends up looking like because that's another aspect of this right okay we maybe have said or taught it a certain way but then in the back i think a lot of people a lot of coaches mind is like well there's still a right right and a wrong way to do this right correct so go ahead and and talk about how that informs the coaching and then also what you end up seeing
1: so so I don't think I defined a constraint when we went through. So a constraint is a feature that imposes a limitation, and that may be modifiable. Mm. So we may be able to to change that as a coach or change that over time within our individual with training or some sort of mobility drill, something like that. Now, in motor learning, there's something called the degrees of freedom problem, mm. and that's related to self-organization because there are a lot of different ways to produce the same movement outcome. So if if the task of the learner is to lift this trap bar from the floor, there are a lot of different ways that 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 athlete could coordinate movement of body segments to get that trap bar off the floor, right? And Rob Gray actually in in that episode, I, there's a lot of meat in that, but <laughs> he did say, and I wrote this down because I love this quote. He said, "What are the essential parts, and what can be allowed to vary?" and what are the essential parts of the trap bar deadlift and what can be allowed to vary? Uh, and that to some extent as a, as a coach or as a practitioner is up to us to determine, hopefully on a somewhat individual basis based on the, the goal of the exercise, so on and so forth. But ultimately, the learner has a, a, a lot of different options for getting that bar off the floor. And it's the learner's task to, to kind of figure it out. And we can streamline the learning process by providing some guidance. And that's, that's where our role as a coach, I believe, comes in. To limit, in some ways, to limit those options and maybe guide or funnel down to to more appropriate or more, I don't want to say correct, but acceptable movement techniques, right? So, sure. so if the goal is to, to lift the heaviest trap bar deadlift from the floor, right? I saw a high schooler do a 510 pound trap bar deadlift looking like a sardine. You know, um, a that over. That athlete, and yeah. it over. It's fine. His goal was to get that off the floor, and then he just found yeah. all of his buddies after the lift, and that was an acceptable movement solution for moving that amount of weight. But if if that athlete's goal is to, you know, to build strength in the the hamstrings and quads, for example, what have we done when we've flexed the low back? You know, I'm not saying that it's going to directly lead to injury because we we don't have the research that supports that. But in effect, we potentially reduce the um, resistance moment are and we've reduced the amount of of loading the the hamstrings and quads experience because that learner has figured out that he can more efficiently lift that trap bar with a rounded spine than with uh, a more straight spine and you know it depends on the goal At, at any rate as as coaches we we have a certain kind of schema in mind what each of these lifts or movement patterns ought to look like and that should be based on our again our goal as a powerlifting coach, your schema for the hinge is different than a collegiate striping and conditioning coach's schema for the hinge. I, I'm certain of that because there are different different demands on those tasks and different demands on those athletes. Different goals for for that lift. But you mentioned you mentioned cueing, and and I think that's really what got me interested in this from mm. the get go. The work of Dr. Gabrielle Wolf, and she's been at it for decades now, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Internal and external cues, and and how we can focus, maybe even during the task, focus the attention of the learner to the effective movement on the environment. That's an external cue, or more traditionally, focus the attention of the learner into you know internal sensations and what's going on with your own body. And you know you you got to you got to you got to brace harder. You've got to you know flex at your hip, not your low back. That type of thing. Those would be Mm -hmm. internal cues and the external cues are are quite effective at promoting motor learning and in some cases even more effective at promoting performance and yeah. i believe one of the theories behind that is we're giving some leeway for our learner to self organize to figure out the solution how to create that effect on the environment so the idea of these progressions for the fundamental resistance training movement patterns is are, are there some tasks that that we can set up that make it easier for the learner to figure out appropriate or acceptable movement solutions and i think that's what this boils down to so there's no recipe there's no you know go, go from exercise a to b to c and that's how you teach the hinge it's well if if you observe the hinge movement of your athlete and your goal is to keep a relatively neutral spine well then, let's try that FMS style stick on the back, hold a dowel or a stick, touching your tailbone, your mid back, the back of your head, and then try it. Or maybe, you know, maybe they're they're actually squatting when you ask them to hinge, and it looks a lot more like the squat right. movement pattern. And said, like, "Well, that's hitting the quads, that's hitting the glutes, but I don't know how much hamstring we're getting there. Let's make it more like a hinge." Well, okay. you can add an environmental constraint, have them do it on an incline, put them on a wedge with their forefoot elevated, and that will disallow the forward movement of the knee and hips have to go back. Huh. Give them a target on the wall. Touch this target every rep, the back to wall hip hinge, something along those lines. Sure.
0: Sure. Shift. So before we, yeah, good. I'm glad you did that because that, my next question was to start to dive into like mm-hmm. practical examples, like what are, some, what are some strategies that coaches can use? But before we get there, can you just briefly explain self-organization because that, that's a term that's, again, been used a couple times, but could could definitely be misconstrued. <laughs> so go ahead, go ahead and just briefly explain and, just, and describe what, what self-organization means.
1: Uh, so watch a uh, PhD in motor learning. He's going to tell me I've botched this. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the way I conceptualize this is the, the learner has a task and a, a perceived outcome in mind of that task. So they, they perceive what they're to do and they need to essentially create the sequencing of of movements and events to, to create uh, that outcome. And there are potentially infinite ways of of doing that. So we're looking for the most efficient way, potentially the most comfortable way. And depending on our our perception of of the task itself, um, ultimately we're going to choose a movement strategy or adaptive movement mm-hmm. strategy to to accomplish that task.
0: Right, and then I guess I'll add to that, and then all that kind of culminates into your joints and, and everything, joints, muscles, coordinating to make that perception and what we feel like we need to do come to a reality. And that would that be, I guess, would you agree with that?
1: My my non-expert opinion, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, no. uh, <laughs>
0: maybe this would be a bounce back to Dr. Well, Gray. Well, it's – and the reason I really want to make sure we spend time with this is because, as, as I'm sure you know, is self-organization, <clears throat> if not, I guess, thought about deeply enough or considered enough, easily – can be either misidentified, which I've, I've seen more, more than not, or, or hopefully misapplied as, as technique doesn't matter. Like Um, that's, that's where it's like, well, if if people can just self-organize, well, what, then does technique even matter? Like we can't just, so we just let people do whatever they want. That's, that's stupid. Well, no, that's not what self-organization is saying. But what you what you mentioned is this combination of what's the perception, what what is the task goal, and then what is all what are all the options and bandwidth within those two things to achieve said goal, and that's where we shape things with our instruction. Okay, we're giving them a sense of what do I need to do here, and then it also we shape it with our with our demonstration. So like. You combine those things. So let's say you're very technical with your instruction. You're very internally focused. Do this, do that. It needs to move like this. Do this with your knee. Do this with your hips. And then they see a you do it. Well, most athletes, I feel like, are going to try to replicate what you do. Like, they're going to try to make themselves look like you. If, in fact, they understand what you're starting to tell them to do. Which, for a more complex lift, like a clean or something, they don't always do. Which, again, goes back to the importance of what you say. But, you know, I remember things like with winkleman's queuing, using words like snap or using words that align with the type of movement you want to see. You know, if you want the bar to move fast, use words that, that put an image in their mind of speed, fast, aggressive. But self-organization does not mean that like, yeah, we're just going to let anything fly. But at the same time, a key aspect of Of self-organization of the constraints led approach and of like the things we've discussed so far is that it hopefully allows for a little some movement variability and and the individual to come up with movement solutions that yes accomplish the task and that yes align with the key performance indicators or the, or the, the main things, the, the what's essential part of the movement. And that is important for long-term health and performance. So talk about, talk about if we can just kind of going into the next segment here, how then, you know, assuming an athlete is, is kind of following us with our instruction Use maybe some constraints or externally focused things to get them to move a certain way or close to a way that we want to see. How do then do we allow for this self-organization or allow for slight movement variability from person to person?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned key performance indicators. And, and again, this is not something that I came up with, uh, but an article by Dr. Stephanie Morris, 2020 in Strength and Conditioning Journal. It was actually on the Olympic lifts, a lot Clean and Jerk um, and Snatch, proposed kind of a loose framework as, as opposed to an explicit, this is what every phase of those Olympic lifts ought to look like. This is a loose framework. We're going to call it key performance indicators. These are the things you're looking for. You're looking for a grossly vertical bar path. You're looking for the bar to remain close to the body. And in the catch, you will land on the spot or ever slightly behind it mm-hmm. uh, with with more vertical movement of the bar than horizontal, things of that nature, basically, what do we allow? going back to Rob Grace, but what do we allow to vary, and what do we want to see maintain? What are the key characteristics? And, and you mentioned, you know, d- does technique matter? Well, of course it matters because it may affect our ability to, to achieve the goal of the training, which mm-hmm. is to apply a training stimulus in most cases. And if technique doesn't matter and it's allowed to vary widely, from session to session and rep to rep, we're going to have a really difficult time applying progressive overload, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing's, nothing's being done consistently enough to, to facilitate progressive overload of that athlete and to facilitate the adaptations that we're going for. So we need, we need some rules, right? We need, we need some guidelines. And I think that's an area of need, maybe as, as we start thinking more about exercise technique. Authors are writing about exercise technique, which is something I love to do. I'm always very careful about not being too explicit about the exercise technique mm-hmm. because we appreciate that there is some variability. There are just what are the key performance indicators? You know, like for, for a deadlift, the, the barbell needs to remain over the base support. That was also a key performance indicator. Chuen and Burkhardt called it the optimal window. Your barbell during a back squat or a front squat needs to remain over the front and back extremes of your feet for goodness sakes and and that's part of that movement pattern yeah. else we're liable to lose our balance yeah. but i i do think we start seeing more movement variability as we apply load and in the article we encourage right off the bat as as soon as reasonably possible we need to start loading these movement patterns because the constraints become much more uh, defined under load uh-huh. so there's a lot more variability when doing a body weight squat than when doing a, a heavy back squat, right? Yes. So some techniques just won't fly anymore Yeah. when when you get plenty of load on your back. Yeah. So there, there's a place for, you know, just load the movement pattern. There's certainly a place for that. And and you should do that as early as, as feasible um, with your clients. But if we had this kind of schema in our head, what does this movement pattern look like? And what are the key performance indicators for each? Then we've gone a lot, long way from accepting, okay. You know, this athlete squat does look different, but both of those squats are acceptable because these are two different athletes with two different body types and injury histories and maybe even two different training goals.
0: Right. Right. And you, what you mentioned there about, you know, load, load as feasibly as possible mm-hmm. and the fact that really the skill of a bodyweight squat and a loaded squat, especially as the farther you get away from that bodyweight squat are different. And one thing I've gained an appreciation for a lot more over the years is like the skill of very heavy loading is is very different than even moderate loading. Like, yes, they look the same to maybe like the naked eye, but they are not the same skill. And and we kind of I mean, powerlifters know that like expression at these very high intensities is is a is a skill from a just yeah expression standpoint but it's also a skill from a movement standpoint like they are not the same thing and that's where again the progression thing is a little bit you know just kind of was always in the back of my mind but also the the phrase you know don't load dysfunction kind of sticks in my mind too of like all right if someone can't execute this bodyweight squat the way the way you want it or whatever it is and a lot of times that means oh, don't add any load whatsoever like that means they can't hold hold a kettlebell or they can't whatever load it in any way shape or form if they can't form it in a body weight fashion well a lot of times this, we see it actually get quote unquote improved with a little bit of load but it also speaks to the fact that there's a it's a different dynamic it's a different skill there's a different uh, coordination that needs to occur for that to happen so I just think it's again very interesting when you kind of start piecing these things together, some of our traditional, traditional methods or traditional ways of thinking starts to be a little, a little muddy. And it, it does leave us in a tough spot, kind of honestly, like, right, what now do I do? <laughs> what and how do where do I go from here? So, you know, let's go ahead and give a few more examples, I think would be really helpful. You know, we gave, you gave some examples of like a hinge pattern, ways you might cue that ways you might teach it, things like that, what, what are a couple others that come to mind for you or that you like a lot or that you see or that you've used with, with either yourself or with other people in, in, in the past?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to preface this as a, as a general heuristic for dealing with this degrees of freedom problem where we have tons of options to, to come about a movement solution and our goal is to narrow it. Well, we're thinking about an exercise variable called complexity. As a coach, I think you should be thinking about the complexity of the exercise that you're asking your learner to perform. And, you know, by definition, uh, the feature, defining feature of complexity is the technical difficulty of the exercise. So an exercise with more joints to control will be inherently more difficult than an exercise that's well supported with fewer joints to have to control throughout the exercise. An exercise with a larger base of support with less balance demand will be less complex, less technically difficult than an exercise with a a smaller base of support. Hmm. Uh, An exercise under stable conditions would be less complex than an exercise with instability added. Um, So thinking about, for example, a horizontal pulling pattern, teaching someone to perform a row, a rowing type movement. If possible, I start most of my very early learners on in prone, lying on their stomach, whether on a bench with a prone bench pull or on a treatment table in the, in the PT clinic with their arm or arms hanging off. So what that does is it reduces the demand on the athlete or client to control all the joints of their spine, trunk, and legs. They're well supported and really the, the movement that's available to them comes from the upper extremity at least. So that might right. be a great place to start. It also sets you up. If you think about it, that position sets you up for efficient use of external cues. One I really like with the row and individuals not retracting or pulling their shoulder blades back when they row. And you know that whole you've seen it. The, the <laughs> entire motion of the row comes from the the ball and socket joint of the shoulder. Comes from yep. the glenohumeral joint, mm-hmm. right? So they they pull the elbow back behind them, and then toward the end, the shoulder dumps forward. It's the yeah. very um, characteristic movement pattern, but it may not be what you're looking for if your goal is to strengthen the mid-back, for example. Sure. So that, in my mind, if my goal is to strengthen the mid-back, is not an acceptable movement solution. So I'm going to apply a cue. And and yeah, you traditionally, the cue would be, you know, squeeze your shoulder blades together. Mm-hmm. Do it here and you poke at them between yep. their shoulder blades. You feel <laughs> <Yep>. the contracting, <laughs> yeah. right? Yep. And we've all been cued in the, to do it that way. And that may be an effective cue. I like giving a little bit more leeway to the athlete with an external cue will focus on creating more space between the front of your shoulder and the floor as you pull, and the only way really for them to create more space between the front of their shoulder and the floor as they perform this prone row is to pull back or retract their shoulder blade. Mm-hmm. so they they come up with that movement solution on their own in a sense once you've provided that cue or that guidance to them.: Yeah, you know, so from there you can start opening up degrees of freedom. Or creating some instability. If your goal is truly, you know, motor learning and becoming as robust as possible in this movement pattern, you're going to want to intentionally add, add variation to this. Mm -hmm. So let's not stop at the prone row. If our goal isn't to just improve our, you know, prone row one rep max or to, to build the capacities we can build with the prone row. Sure. Well, let's, let's take that support away and try an inverted row. That might be the next one you move to. And that asks them to really control the joints of their trunk and lower body as they perform the pull. Sure. And then, you know, you, you, the sky is the limit if, yeah. if your goal really is to kind of push down that path of increased exercise complexity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to be clear, that has to be your goal for, for that intervention because you may sacrifice loading potential, for example. So when I move from a prone row to an inverted row and then from an inverted row to a trx or a suspension trainer row Mm -hmm. and probably sacrificing some potential for loading that pattern it is it is much more challenging to pull as much weight when you're suspended by straps that are you know can move in all three coordinates compared to holding a bar compared to being fully supported and pulling that bar toward your body So just be clear on your intention, your goal for the exercise when you're kind of moving through these complexity progressions. Right. Again, the sky is the limit. You don't have Mm -hmm. to lose that, that progression of one, two, three. Um, Some athletes might, might be just fine moving from a prone row to a bent over row. And, you know, that, that could be their primary, you know, uh, their staple horizontal pulling exercise for this block of training.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a good point because, yeah, it does ultimately, yeah, what it, what is the goal mm-hmm. of why you're including this movement? Because that's a very, like, going from a prone, like, seal row and using that as a starting point for even just, like, a bent over barbell row, I mean, that's a fairly scaled back complexity progression, you know what I mean? So, I mean, like, most athletes could, in 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 most cases, start with just the bent over row, right? But what's what's the goal? And then I even just even listening to you talk, honestly, like hardly ever do barbell bent over rows anymore because my goal no longer is is a field athlete where I want the coordination of my entire body working in concert to produce movement. I want to, I want a jacked upper back, so I want I want to be able to load those those muscles and those tissues as directly as possible without having to worry about. What the other joints of my body are doing, and having them potentially limit the load and, and I'm able to use, or I'll do like a pendulum row or something like that. That again, where it's not as much of an issue. So it's just got it's interesting to see how those all those little wrinkles can can inform really really what you're doing. So I'm gonna throw a little curveball at you right now. Yeah. So let's say you have someone on the inverted row that's now asking them to. You know, control their trunk, control their hips and pelvis, control what's going on at their knees, and you have someone who can't control their pelvis, so their hips are dipping down, their butts dropping, or they're doing the worm the worm row or the hips lead, and they kind of like they roll up and do the worm into their row based on like all the stuff we've talked about today. What are some things you might say and or do in that situation other than saying? hey, keep your hips stable or something like that, like a classic cue of, hey, don't move your hips or, hey, keep your body straight, you know, head to heel or something like that. When you pull, like, what are some things you might do in that situation?
1: Yeah. So this is, this is where I think it's beneficial to take an eclectic approach and, and think about, okay, I don't have to abandon traditional exercise instruction. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to be full all in on the psychological dynamic systems approach if a cue like row, like a plank resonates with that client, that might be the most efficient way for me to get sure. at that. It's like, think of a plank, keep a plank the whole time. If that resonates, boom, we've just potentially made that movement pattern acceptable to the point where they can perform their set. And if if that is ultimately the goal of the session, to be proficient at that at that movement with acceptable technique, I've just achieved my goal and I don't have any allegiance to, you know, Dr. Newell, and you know a coach much more creative than me could certainly come up with a you know a task-based exercise to remedy that right. So you know, put me on the spot here, create, creating something creative, right? But but how do we how do we set up the environment yeah, or, or right. set up the environment to facilitate a relatively motionless trunk while that yeah. individual performs the inverted row?
0: Well, I actually I actually kind of want to run, run with your plank because that. The whole time you're talking, you know, pe- pedagogy, I'm thinking about how you and I might have constructed a class. What would we do? We'd scaffold information. We'd say, what, what does the student need to know here so they can understand something later? And what, what things can we set up to, like, make it make sense or have things interconnect? So let's say that you did use something like that and like, oh yeah, when I plank, what's, what am I, the athlete or the class think, when I plank, what's happened? What, what, what are my hips doing? What does my core feel like? So you're, you're letting them own it more. Hopefully, that's the goal, right? Like they have to think, okay, because of what Coach Lincoln told me about how I need to plank, this is now what I need to do, except I'm on my back. I'm, I'm not prone anymore. I'm supine. Okay, well, I still have to do the same thing. Okay, what are my glutes doing? Boom, there we go. But now it, it gives more importance to the plank. So like, oh, yeah, coach has a plank in my program, this, because of this. So, yes, I'm strengthening my core specifically, but he's referring to it when I do other things. Oh, okay, so it's not just, it's not just to get me a six-pack. It's to help me learn other things, or it's to help strengthen this movement and that movement. Like, I'll be honest, that's the biggest reason I used a bird dog or a dead bug. And when I was coaching, it's like, yeah, am I, am I gaining some anterior core strength here? I'm, I'm, I'm helping the limbs move around a stable pelvis, yada, yada. But I, I wanted to get away from like the super spine extended back squat, everything position. So like, you know, super extended spine RDL, super, like where it's just always. Doing that in everything they do. I, I kind of wanted to break the mold of that. So what did I do? I do a dead bug. All right. And I for I, I give the cue of pushing the low back into the floor or whatever, something like that to get the spine a little bit more neutral, posterior tilt the pelvis. And then you add in little external things like put a put a band under the low back so they have to push down on the band. And then mm-hmm. as they're extending, pull the band. Well, if they let their spine go into extension, I, the band's going to fly out. Or if it's a bird dog, I put a little five pound plate on their low back and say, push your back up into the plate. So that when they're extending their limbs, if again, if they fall into extension and anteriorly tilt the pelvis, that space is going to increase and they're going to know, Oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. I was supposed to keep my back in, into the plate and, and, and whatnot. So like, those are like things I would think about all the time. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say like, Oh yes, all my athletes had a perfect, they looked amazing and moved really, really well. And they got it, quote unquote, because that's sometimes, sometimes I felt like here I'm, I, I think in my head, I'm getting all these cool strategies and the athletes are like, Ben White, what are you, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> what are you making us do? So those are just things like as coaches and with the advent of these motor learning skill acquisition concepts, I think, I think it can be really, really powerful, hopefully, but also gives you, eclectic approach. What's the tool in your toolbox that will get the job done? Yes, but we want to get it done, I feel like, in the way that, I get number one promotes learning, number two promotes ownership, and then and number three promotes long-term success, which is where hopefully through these methods, we're allowing some of that little, those little movement variabilities and for them to self-organize their own solutions in the best way possible. So, sorry, a uh, little, little tangent. Do you have anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah. You know, I, the last thing I want to come across as, is a gatekeeper to movement. And, and this, this is not the point. We're not saying movement has to be perfect and look just like this, because like you said, ownership, hmm. we want our athletes to take ownership of the movement and become lifelong movers. That's probably the most important thing in the, in the long game. Right. Absolutely. So we do need to be careful about how we coach because our words do carry meaning and the way we frame these concepts carries meaning. So I'm very cautious. And because I have, I have no evidence to suggest that if someone moves in a particular way and I qualitatively see that, you know, really Greg Lehman, a uh, physical therapist, <laughs> a physical therapist. He, he says it, if it looks pornographic. <laughs> um, if it looks pornographic. Like that's when you know it's wrong. Like you right? know
0: when you see it. Uh, right.
1: <laughs> yes. You know it when you see it. So you know, that, that pornographic squat, I'm not going to say that's going to blow out your back because for goodness sake, yeah. I might be creating, I, I'm in a position of authority, Yeah,
0: right? yeah. you don't want to fear monger.
1: Yeah, I, I do. I do not have any reason to do that. So, uh, you know, I, I love, I work with dietitians and I know that's your mm-hmm. background is in nutrition. Yep. I love this concept of high performance food, low performance food, mm. you know, and let's apply that. I, that was mind blowing. I heard that like high performance food versus low performance food. I'm like, boom, we have high performance technique and low-performance technique for our specific goals. And, and my job as a practitioner is to promote high-performance technique for the specific training objective. Not to say moving in this way is going to hurt you or, you know, rob you of your gains. Right. Bro. Um, Bro. <laughs> because, because it probably won't. And ultimately, our, our words do have meaning, and we don't want to be gatekeepers to movement. That's none of our, none of us have that as yeah. an intention. Right. Um, but I I love the strategies you've used because you've built a library with your athletes. Right. You've built a library of of, of meaning. You've built this meaning with your athletes that mm-hmm. you can efficiently now use cues that resonate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like the push the door closed, push the car door closed with your butt if you're coaching the hip hinge. Mm-hmm. If you know, if you're someone who carries all your groceries in in one trip, which you ought to be. You have closed the car door with your butt, right? Yeah. So that cue might resonate with you, and if yep. it does, well, then we don't need to do the back to wall hip hinge drill, right? We, that 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 has yes.
0: meaning. That's a good. That's a great point because that's that's another wrinkle here is that cues have to like mean something. They've got to they've got to hold me, and that's where you know sometimes I would, you know, we we've all heard some, some similar cues in, in certain things, like whether it's like the airplane taking off with acceleration and things like that. Yeah, there are definitely times where I set a cue and I just saw my athletes the blank stare, and I'm like, "Oh crap, that didn't that didn't land." So yeah, you have you got to. That's that's kind of the cool thing about coaching. You get to know your athletes a little bit better, and and actually, I'll I'll point out uh, Elijah Muhammad, uh, previous guest that I had on, talked about this with when he's teaching his athlete or his uh, weightlifting seminars. Is that's where he starts. He's like, "I'm going to start with things they already know," and that just takes down the barriers almost immediately, rather than starting with where the barbell needs to be or like triple extension power position, I'll ask, Hey, have you ever taken something from the ground and put it on your shoulder in one motion? Oh, okay. So you've done this before. We're now just going to do it and add a few things, you know? So I'm like, it's really, really powerful stuff. So, all right. Well, I, that, that's a, that's a, uh, about a good place to stop for today. But Merrick, if people want to connect with you more, you mentioned where you're right we mentioned your Instagram handle, Dr. Lincoln, Lincoln Lifts. Any, any other places that people can connect with you or follow you?
1: Yeah. So, you know, at my university, you'd be forgiven for having not heard of Saginaw Valley State, small university, but we've got some special stuff going on. At SVSU, we hope to host an NSCA clinic here. So if you're in this region or wouldn't mind traveling to, to Michigan for a NSCA clinic, keep your ear to the ground. We're going to be hosting either a state level or a regional level NSCA clinic at Saginaw Valley State and I'll always post my my latest academic writing presentations things like that I've got some work coming up with Matt Ibrahim's athletic performance university this fall so I'm excited to get involved awesome yeah so keep him busy and happy belated father's day to you by the way thanks
0: thanks to you as well you got twins on the way so I (laughs) thank you yeah they're already
1: (laughs) we life's about to change so yes uh,
0: (laughs) My wife really Chris good. and I are expecting
1: our first this fall. And and that's actually I think that's why I'm so interested in in motor learning right now. You yeah. know, I'm I'm expecting 100%. these young learners, twins, and and I want them to, to have love for movement and start from an Same early here. age. Yes. So I
0: actually saw a, a friend of mine who, if you don't know him, you should you should look him up, Michael Zweifel. He just posted his, his obstacle course for his daughter in, his, in their basement. I'm like, I showed that to my wife and I'm like, how much of this can we make? How much of this can we can we do? So that's awesome. Well, Merrick, thank you so much for your time today and definitely look forward to all the stuff you've got going on in the future.
1: Thanks for having me, Corey.
0: Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review Share on social media and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.